Hi, I'm David Naiman, the host of the radio show and podcast Between the Covers. People are often surprised to learn that this is not my day job, that I don't get paid. But that's not why I'm here today. I'm not here to ask you for an income. Up until now, hosting the podcast has involved only nominal fees, but the podcast has seen explosive growth this year. Listenership has quadrupled in less than 10 months. And these once nominal fees have grown to many hundreds of dollars, which could easily become thousands next year and which I'm paying myself. So I'm here today talking to you in the hope of creating a sustainable model for me to nurture the podcast success. If you value these interviews, whether with great fiction writers such as George Saunders, Laurie Moore, or Juno Diaz, science fiction icons Ursula K. Le Guin, William Gibson, and Neil Stevenson, or genre-bending essayists and poets such as Claudia Rankine, Maggie Nelson, and Mary Rufel, I hope you'll become a patron of Between the Covers. Your per-episode contribution would be your way to participate in the show's long-term health. Please take a moment and either go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash between the covers or to david com slash support and give your support and enjoy today's program between the covers is brought to you in part through the support of propeller a magazine of books music art film and life and its publishing imprint propeller books visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Keith Lee Morris, is the author of the novels The Greyhound God and The Dart League King and the story collections, The Best Seats in the House and Other Stories, and Call It What You Want. His stories have been published in Tin House, A Public Space, The New England Review, and The Southern Review, which awarded him its Eudora Welty Prize in fiction. Morris is a professor of creative writing at Clemson University and is here today to talk about his new novel, Traveler's Rest, a book described as Alice in Wonderland meets The Shining, as a perfect mixture of horror and fairy tale, as belonging in the company of Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House and David Lynch's Twin Peaks, and by Publishers Weekly in its starred review as quiet and languorous, sweeping steadily and inexorably along like a curtain of drifting snow, identified too late as an avalanche. Welcome to Between the Covers, Keith Lee Morris. Thank you. You've expressed surprise that people in the United States are calling Traveler's Rest horror, given the absence of gore and violence in your book, and also given the fact that you've been writing what you call dream stories for much of your career. 
and that really the only big departure is that you're now writing a novel-length dream story. So before we talk about Traveler's Rest, why don't we start with your long engagement with dream narratives in general and tell us what you find compelling about dreams in relation to story. I, to me, I, I got interested in writing stories. I mean, in a way, it was kind of an exercise in trying to force myself to not to think out my plots too much. I have a tendency to want to sort of understand the architecture of stories before I start them, which can actually be a little bit inhibiting. And so working from the dreams was a way to make myself sort of write intuitively. Like I would start with a piece of a dream and I wouldn't have anything else really in mind and I would just start going with it and I wouldn't really know where it was going. Um, and I learned how to do that in writing short stories. A novel is a whole different thing, right? I mean, you right. start trying to write a novel and you have no idea where you're going and you suddenly you know, get, uh, get partway into it and, and that's more difficult. And that was kind of the challenge with with uh, this novel, but I wanted to, I I mean, uh, dreams are interesting to me because I feel like uh, we tend to think that's not part of our regular life. That's not part of what we're really doing, but that we spend how many hours a day or how many hours a night actually dreaming and that the dreams have an effect on us and they stay in our memory and they're real things that happen to us in some sense. And so I wanted to write a novel in which the whole thing felt more or less like a dream or the characters can't tell really whether they're awake or whether they're dreaming in some sense, that the whole thing exists in a kind of dream state. It kind of reminds me of Ursula K. Le Guin's comment about stories that don't have dragons like human <laughs> human beings imagine dragons and 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 need dragons and if you have stories without uh, human imagination or the right. imaginative faculty they actually aren't realistic in, right. a, in a strange way yeah i agree i mean and, and and the fact that a lot of narratives i mean you know they, they don't take account of the idea of dreaming and that sort of thing i mean it's it's interesting though that like you talk about there's no there's no genre for dream stories which has been kind of that's been kind of the difficulty with this novel in a way is how do you categorize it? And uh, well, to me, it's just like a literary novel that uses elements of, say, haunted house stories, but that exists in this kind of dream state. There's really not a genre for that. I don't really even know people who've talked about it that much. There's a professor at the University of Illinois named Philip Graham, who's actually written about dream stories or dream narratives. Uh, other than that, I don't know anybody who's really dealt with it much. You know. Well, with the craft of writing a dream story, how do you deal with the issue of stakes and consequence and suspense when maybe anything could happen versus right. the yeah, set parameters right. of the world? Right. So you have to kind of, to me at least, so there's, there's a randomness to dreaming. There's, or what I like to think of as dream logic, Right? right? It has its own separate logic from what we experience every day. But you're right. There has to be something going on there that you feel has some kind of consequences in the real world. And that's sort of the trick. But um, I, I think that's what I kind of set out to find when I start trying to write a story like that is, okay, so where is this going and why does it matter in some way? to the people who are in the story. And that's the same thing that with this novel. And it took me quite a while. I mean, it really did. It was, you know, it was really scary to be, say, 80 to 100 pages into a book and not quite understand what was going on or where the thing was going. Um, that was really the most difficult part of the book. I think the, the first, say, 80 to 100 pages of the book took me maybe three years. And then the last 
250 pages were about six months. Wow. Once I once I kind of figured it out. And, and you've mentioned you mentioned at the beginning that. Uh, you starting a novel, it's scarier not knowing where you're going. But you've also talked about an acronym that you use to sort of keep you on task around things in this dream world. So can you tell us what Madfist is? And- yeah. So so I was I mean I was reading Proust, Remembrance of Things Past, the whole time, which is basically one of the only books that you can read that takes longer to read than the novel that you're writing at the time. Right. And so for years I'm you know wading through Proust and a lot of the. Um, I think a lot of the thematic concerns in that novel started kind of leaking into my novel. So, um, so yeah, I had this thing. It was I would tell myself, especially when I was out running. I, I run uh, distance running, and uh, I would tell myself, you know, it's mad fist. Whatever's going on, it's a memory apprehension, as in understanding, not you know, not fear. Memory apprehension, dreams, family identity, solitude, and time. It's like, okay, those are the things that the book is about. And so I would think through elements of the plot. It's like, if something's going on that doesn't have anything to do with one of those, you know, it's a, then I'm off on the wrong track. So I would, yeah, I would go out running and I would tell myself, mad fist, mad fist. <laughs> and I'd try to figure out parts of the plot and say, okay, what's going on that has something to do with that? Um, but it's a very, it's a really complicated book. It's by far the hardest thing that I've ever written. And so, yeah, I needed some sort of almost like mnemonic device to, to keep me on track. So Traveler's Rest begins with a, a family driving back across country from Seattle and getting waylaid because of a, a once-in-a-century snowstorm. They end up pulling off the highway in a small ex-mining town in the panhandle of Idaho called Goodnight. And that's where your novel takes place, stuck in Good, Goodnight, Idaho, in this dream logic town, essentially. What was the original impetus for this? I know with your stories, it was often actual dreams, right. but I've actually read that with this, it wasn't an actual dream, even though you're working in a dream world. Well, it, it was, it just, the, um, I, I, the dream was, we stay at a, it started off that it was going to be a novel called The Beach House. And, um, we, va- my, my family, we vacationed down in St. Simon's Island, Georgia, it's a little town off the coast on, on in Georgia. And, uh, it started because I had this dream about the beach house we stay in. I walked around the outside of the house and saw a window that I knew was not actually there, that I knew didn't belong in the house. And two people were in the window talking to one another. Um, and that's that was actually the dream that started it. And so I started trying to imagine who these people were what they were doing there, what it had to do with the family, and started to construct the novel. Yeah, you know, so there were scenes like on the beach and you know surf and all this kind of stuff. And then I was in Wallace, Idaho. At uh, a friend of mine owns a microbrewery there, and um, we ha- I happened to be there because I was doing a book tour. I happened to be there on the night when the brewery opened, and so me and some other friends went there and we were sampling the merchandise. And uh, after a while of that, we had another friend whose mother had bought an old hotel in Wallace, this old abandoned hotel. And he took us in there during the middle of the night with a flashlight, no electricity or anything. And we're wandering through this hotel and it was 
crazy. It was this crazy place with these stairways all over everywhere. And one of my friends actually managed, he went into a room and closed the door and it had no knob. The door had no knob on it and he managed to lock himself in this room. And that's really where it kind of came from. I was like, okay, this is way better than the beach. I'm using this old hotel, you know, in this old mining town. And so... There's a spooky history to Wallace too with the mining accident. And that, that happened when I was a kid living in that area where they had, I think it's still actually the U.S.'s biggest mining disaster where it's like 91 people were killed or something and we lived in that area. So um, I can, you know, and school was called off, uh, you know, everything was closed down and, but I can remember, you know, you'd go around town and I knew, you know, people whose parents were in the mine and only two people made it out alive. So it was, it was, um, yeah, it was, it's, it was a really weird, strange period. And then later on, you kind of associate that place with that event so that it does, yeah, it seems kind of scary. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Keith Lee Morris about his latest novel, Traveler's Rest. There's a review of your story collection, Call It What You Want, that reminds me also of aspects of Traveler's Rest. So I'm going to just read you a little little okay. thing of this review and, and see what you think. Characters are constantly engaged in the act of narrative construction. Again and again, Morris structures his stories to obscure actual events, thereby forcing the characters to remember, speculate, or fantasize them into being much like writers do. Only these characters are not writers. They are a meth addict, a car salesman, a bartender stranded on a desert island. And this feels, this idea of like speculating and remembering and fantasizing the events into being feels like something also about Traveler's Rest because these characters are sort of separated from their family and, and trapped in almost their own minds and their own memories. And the town itself is sort of separated from the world and trapped in, in a memory in a, in a strange way. What, what's compelling about that is a construction which obviously goes back beyond, before uh -huh. Traveler's Rest. So part of what I was trying to work with was the idea of, I mean, I have two kids myself. Um, both of them are grown now. I shouldn't say kids because one of them is 23, the other one is 18. But having raised two sons, you know, you go through that, that whole thing when they're younger and you're trying to construct this family and, you know, you want it to be sort of impenetrable and just kind of, you know, you know, nothing can, nothing bad can happen. You're trying to create this world where everything is safe and secure and everybody is connected to one another, but we're really all alone. You know, I mean, we're, it's, it, when it gets right down to it, it's each of us by ourselves and um, there's nobody else there. Uh, and so I wanted to, yeah, and I think that's what I do typically is sort of put characters in that position where they have to feel their own isolation uh, and they in some ways have to confront their own identity separate from somebody else's identity, separate from all those kind of social constructs that we spend most of our time in. And right, so that that's, yeah, I definitely was interested in that with this novel, that I, I was really conscious of the idea of getting the main characters in this place and then separating them all um, so that they're all together in some sense, but entirely alone at the same time. Well, this seems like a good segue to to Proust and returning to what your your relationship between Traveler's Rest and what you were reading at the time of Traveler's Rest. Because you begin the book with an epigram from Proust, and then each section of the book has an epigram from Proust. 
your prose syntactically and tonally doesn't read to me like Proust necessarily. It doesn't have all those nested clauses and, and super long sentences. Um, but what's interesting to me is it feels like there is a relationship between Proust's sentences and the geography. Like you've almost given a geography to Proust's sentences, it seems to me, and the way that his sentences are mimicking like the way memory works in a recursive mind and uh, traveling through memories. And it sort of unmoors you from the present moment and from physical space and time. Your story is structured with scenarios nested within scenarios and time periods that intersect other time periods, sort of like if Swan's mind had been given a a spatial dimension. Uh Um, I don't know if that, if that feels right to you. But I'm curious more. I want to lean harder into this Proust connection because the the um, you definitely repeatedly bring us back to Proust as we go from section right. to section in the in the book, which was not you know that that wasn't the original intention. Um, I, I started with the the first um, the first epigraph from the first section started off to be the one that was going to be the epigraph for the whole book and in fact the f- original title for the book was movable things which is a, a, a quote out of that original um, section there that um, so then all of a sudden that kind of evolved and there were different parts of the novel and it was kind of like okay well there are, you know we want to f- I want to find something in Proust that can be used to identify what's going on in those sections. But I actually feel like I, I kind I, I do feel like in a way some of the sentences are Proustian, I guess, that there are some long involved sentences that kind of meander around and go back on themselves. Um, I felt like that and and I think you're you're right, which may frustrate some readers, the idea that the book kind of keeps turning back on itself in some way and there's no sort of straight line forward. And um, there are places where you feel like you're almost reading the same thing that you've read before, which is yeah. maybe not a great strategy. Um, but I, you know, I was trying to do that intentionally. I wanted there to be a point in the book where the reader sort of feels like, yeah, this has been going on forever. We've been here a long time. And I know that that's dangerous as a fiction writer that you, you know, you have to, you're risking the idea that the reader's going to put the book down. But I felt like, you know, if I can, if I can establish that as a theme and I can establish that as the way that the novel is working in some way, um, and the reader understands that, then they'll stick with me as they go along. Well, I love how you insert some physical objects that are also sort of doubling down on this nested reality. You have a snow globe, a haunted or ailing television, uh, the mirrors, and then the gumball machine, which all literally mirror in miniature the larger world. So it's almost like holograms of what's going on in the book. And so you have these different lenses from which you can look at Goodnight Idaho or any individual character in the book's consciousness, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was um, the, yeah, at one point I even toyed with the idea of calling the novel um, The Snow Globe or, you know, and so, right, I was, I was, I was definitely aware of that, the worlds within worlds and the idea of characters who, uh, a lot, like you point out, a lot of stuff with mirrors and reflections and people who are looking out at one thing but seeing themselves at the same time in some way. Well, let's have you read from Traveler's Rest. We, we picked apart 
of that I think is ha, does have some Proustian elements to it, um, and definitely deals with this idea of of dreams within dreams. This is uh, from the middle. This is the the main um, the mother. This is one of the main characters, um, Julia. She dreamed that she had a dream about something she should remember. In the dream that she was dreaming she had, she was opening the door to a room, and something important was happening on the other side of the door. She could feel herself leaning into the truth concealed by the door, but she couldn't fit the key into the lock fast enough before the dream she dreamed she was having ended because she dreamed of waking up, outside in the snow, standing in front of a window reading the letter about the key. This dream made her impatient, because after all, she'd already read the letter in a different dream, or what she had thought was a dream before she seemed, at times, to be in possession of an actual key, which actually did open the door to room 306. But in this dream, anyway, she was impatient to get back inside the hotel. She hurried through the falling snow as best she could, taking small steps in an unwieldy pair of shoes, ankle boots, really, which she didn't recognize as her own but liked immensely just the same, holding up her long skirt in the snow, a skirt she didn't recognize either. And then she suddenly found herself standing outside the door to her own room, and she pressed her ear close to the wood, listening for noises. It was in her very own room that the important thing was happening, the thing that had been in the other dream. She was spying on someone, she realized, but she didn't know if it was herself or someone else. What did she think was going on behind there? She heard a man's voice and then the low, muffled voice of a woman and recognized in a hot wave of embarrassment that she was listening to two people having intercourse, but she didn't know if it was herself she was listening to. She was mostly curious to know who the man was, so she began very quietly to fit the key to the lock, and it was the fear of finding out something about herself, something she didn't want to know, that woke her from the dream of turning the key in her own door to watch the couple, whoever they were, and when she jerked awake in bed, sitting straight upright, naked, she quickly looked down to find out if she was with anyone, if she could still catch herself in the dream. No one was there. There was the impression of a head on the other pillow. The sheets were tangled on that side of the bed. When she put her hand to the mattress on the other side from where she slept, it was warm to the touch. But she was confused about who might have been there. She was alone in the room and everything was white. All she could see was snow everywhere she looked, as if she were flying through a whole world of snow where nothing was solid, where she was weightless and suspended. She knew she hadn't eaten in a long time, and she felt so light in both her body and her mind that it was as if she didn't exist at all. She had been dreaming, hadn't she? Of what? She couldn't remember. But she was awake now, or she thought she was awake, if that word meant anything anymore. She rose and stood naked in front of the mirror. Julia. Julia was the woman in the mirror. And as had been the case lately, when she stood in front of the mirror, there were other Julias, each just a little fainter, each just a little further removed, reflected behind the first Julia, but there was no mirror behind her to create the reflections. And as always, when she stepped away, the women in the mirror followed her, one by one, each just a fraction of a, section, a second behind the one before her. Slipping on her nightgown, she found that the key was in her hand, and she moved to the door and used the key and passed into the hallway. She was hungry, that was all she knew, and not necessarily for food, though food would do. 
She floated down corridors and through rooms and up and down stairways and narrow passages, cold and light, like a faraway star. She did not find what she was looking for. She never did. She had been in this corridor for years. You've been listening to Traveler's Rest by Keith Lee Morris. Uh, So, Keith, there's this discussion in the book which this section hints at a little bit about the nature of self, whether the self is something biologic or whether it is socially constructed. How would you articulate these these two different theories? Um, that's tough. I don't, you know, again, I feel like each of that's what each of us is trying to do all the time is to sort of, um, exert our own will, um, our own, you know, that we're all trying to exert our own self-control to have some kind of way of shaping what happens in our lives. Um, and yet it's really difficult, and sometimes we feel like there are outside forces that uh, have more to do with where we end up than our own will and our own decision-making. Uh, so, yeah, that kind of, I, I feel like that kind of tension is there in the novel, um, and each of the characters, again, being sort of separated from one another, each of them on their own separate journey, trying to get back to the others, trying to do something that can determine their own fate. And yeah, that's like, so to me, it was like a little, it was a little microcosm of what our lives are all about all the time for all of us. Well, it really comes to, to a point with the father, Tonio, because he realizes in his isolation that he, his self is solely defined by his relationship to others, uh, being a father to Dewey, being a husband to Julia. And in a way, it feels like you separating all of the characters is a contemplation on whether the nature of self could be inherently relational, interdependent, right, versus something like right. individual and biologic. And with with the father, Tonio, he's the least likely person in some way because he seems really iconoclastic and really kind of uh, introverted, and he's a little bit of a um, curmudgeon in some way. And yet he, right, he's the one that realizes in some sense that he almost doesn't exist outside of his relationship, especially with his son, and that this has kind of happened over the course of all these years without his realizing it in some way. It's only at this point when he's separated from his son and his wife that he begins to understand that that's who he is, is is the person who has this relationship with these people. Well, you, you tell Traveler's Rest through four rotating points of view, um, the wife, the husband, the kid, and, and the uncle. Uh, was there a, a, did you learn anything in particular? Was one really difficult to do versus the others, or one just so natural and easy for you well, to do? Well, I guess I would say, I mean, Robbie, the uncle, um, who's you know a drug addict, and he's just out of rehab, and he's a screw-up, basically, was pretty easy for me to write. I've written that character before. I've known yeah. those people, you know, right? I mean, that that's familiar to me. Uh, and and he could have easily, you know, out of, out of the characters in this novel, I think Robbie is the only one who could comfortably sort of walk into one of my other novels, uh, kind of show up in the middle of one of my other novels and be at home there. Uh, so he was fairly easy. And then Dewey, I think, as a, the, the 10-year-old kid, um, I, I got into his head. I, I probably again. For, he was kind of a combination of both of my sons. I kind of took characteristics from both of them and and put them into Dewey. Um, 
So those were the easier ones. The husband and wife, Tonio and Julia, were tougher. Those were the two. Yeah, those were the two harder ones. Well, it is interesting that your story collection is half. Your last story collection is half realistic stories and half dream narratives. And here, the Dart League King and Traveler's Rest almost feel like they could be a, a realistic and then a, right. a dream story with Robbie being the Robbie being link. the link between the <laughs> right. two. Well, well, let's talk about Idaho as as setting and, and muse. You have this great essay in a public space about your hometown in Idaho, which posits a three-part theory about writers in regards to hometowns. I don't know if you remember the three Good parts, God, yeah. but I can I can read them to you if you don't. <laughs> you tell me. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so your three-part theory about writers uh, and their hometowns. We're never sure we know any place as well as we know our hometown. Okay. We aren't sure that the people we are now are really as much us as the people we were then. Okay. And this feels interesting because this toggling between two versions of your characters and Traveler's Rest in two different time periods sort of right. raises the ante on number two. Uh-huh. And then it's not so much that we can't go home again, it's that we don't go home again. And I love that last one. So what I imagine, what I wonder about the last one is... You've lived in South Carolina for a while. 20 but, years. But you still write about Sandpoint or areas sort of near right. Sandpoint in Idaho. Um, what is the difference between now sort of uh, Keith Lee Morris's imagined Idaho and going to Idaho? You know, there mu- it must right. not match up all the time now. Right. Well, I guess the ways that my hometown is Sandpoint, I guess the ways that it's changed – are the same ways that small towns all across America have changed in some sense. So it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel that strange to me to go there. Um, and I, I do feel that it, it's kind of strange to be separated from the place that you feel like you're working with in your fiction most of the time. And there's, you, there's a, a certain amount of anxiety in feeling that you're not getting it right. But I still have all the same friends there. Uh, you know, there's still geographically, I mean, there's this beautiful lake, there's this same, it doesn't feel that much different to me from how it did when I was a kid, really. And um, so I go there once a year or so, usually for several days. Um, it's, it's a way to stay close to the people and to the place. And I guess I just don't, I don't feel like there's that much separation. It's not... Um, when I go there, it, it, it affirms the things that I thought I was going to find in some way, you know, it's still the same place. And and you share a hometown with, uh, another great writer, uh, Marilyn Robinson, right. Right. Which I love. And and I love her book housekeeping, which is set in Sandpoint, although she doesn't call it Sandpoint in the novel. Um, yeah. And, and it's fun. I mean, most people there don't even know who she is or know anything about her, really. There's another, uh, you know, Dennis Johnson, who's also one of my favorite writers, lives uh, uh, just, you know, 25, 30 miles north of there in Bonner's Ferry. And most people don't know he's there either, huh. you know. Well, it's remarkable, actually, Idaho with Anthony Doerr right. and Brady yeah. Udall, I think, is uh, in Idaho. Alan Heathcock at, at Boise State. Um Mitch Wieland, um, yeah, they're the, and where I'm from at University of Idaho, Kim Barnes, Daniel Orozco, Mary Clearman Blue. It's all these great writers there. Uh, it's yeah, it's strange that you got and, and and most of us, I think, know you know we know each other. Yeah, 
Well, let's talk. Let's return to the the question of whether Traveler's Rest is a, is a horror novel. And at, at the beginning, you know, a lot of the American reviews are saying that that are are making a nod towards the horror genre. But you've mentioned that while this book has come out at the same time in England, and in England it's not being called a horror novel. In England, it's actually set in a historical perspective with like a ghost story, like like Dickens' right. ghost story. Well, I just kind of think what I've seen, you know, you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I can't keep track of exactly, you know, what's going on in the UK with it. But it just seems to me that when you, or or maybe it's a maybe it's the idea of just a. a different definition of what a horror novel is in some ways. And in the UK, it seems to me that when reviewers start talking about the novel, they associate it with things like A Christmas Carol or The Picture of Dorian Gray. Um, and so they're not thinking of it you know, as The Shining or Texas Chainsaw Massacre or right. something like that, right? Um, so it's just, I think it's just kind of a little... Uh, as far as I can see, and if you look at the cover of the UK version, it looks even more like the cover to a horror novel. Um, to me, it seems like it's being marketed even more that way. But I just think there's kind of a different understanding of what that means. Well, what other books other than Proust would you um, would you think are books that have that are that it fits into the same family tree with for you? Other than I, and I don't know that it necessarily fits with Proust. I don't know. You know, I, I really I, I wish I could say I don't. It's Turn of the Screw by Henry James. I mean, I could definitely see some kind of similarity there. Um, there's a there's a short story by a writer named Conrad Aiken called Silent Snow, Secret Snow. That that one was really in my mind as I was working on this. It's about a boy who is sort of becoming delusional and you feel like he's kind of um, slipping into almost a state of uh, catatonic schizophrenia. Um, that sounds really depressing, but um, <laughs> but it's a great short story and that that definitely was in my mind. Um, Mark Danielewski's House of Leaves, uh, which I, I loved the first, say, 100 pages or so of that book. Um, uh, I thought it had these. Have you ever? I don't know if you've read that. I one. haven't it's read this, it. I know what it is. Though. There's this crazy kind of metafictional stuff that goes on on there. It becomes it becomes kind of a, a a novel about novels, and that part of it I wasn't as crazy about. And I can remember reading that book and thinking, you know, if you just stuck to the plot here and just dealt with the characters and didn't go into the, it, then this would be a fantastic book. And so, in some way, I was trying to take the you know the meat of that story and um, create something of my own that didn't sort of go, to me at least, kind of so far afield. Um, those are the things that I, you know, I mean, Shirley Jackson, uh, Haunting of Hill House, um, definitely had that kind of feel to it. A another novel by um, British writer Doris Lessing, The Fifth Child. I love that book. I love that book. And um, th that sort of, you know, that book in the way that it deals with family and how things <laughs> can go wrong right. in a horrible way um, had something to do with it. Well, you you wrote an essay in the Independent about Christmas ghost stories, where you sort of muse about why winter is a good time for the supernatural. But there was one little nugget in there. I think you mentioned that short story you mentioned by Conrad Aiken right, in there. Right. But you also mentioned this great vignette of Mary and Percy Shelley and Lord Byron, right. where they uh, are like doing a dare to all write ghost stories, and and quite significant literature came out of that original dare. 
Can you can you tell us a little bit about that scenario? Well, so the, the, I mean, the, you know, the, the story, who knows how apocryphal it is, but I mean, apparently they all did. They were all in uh, late Geneva, Switzerland. This is Lord Byron, Percy Shelley, Mary Shelley, and other friends there. And um, it actually was... It's interesting. It was around this, you know. So, so it was early 19th century. It was the the coldest summer ever, apparently at the time. And um, so they, there's nothing to do outside. They all got together and told ghost stories, and um, none of them really panned out. All of them had these ideas, except for Mary Shelley's, uh, which became Frankenstein, uh, and. Yeah, so there's this idea of somehow in the middle of the winter, and the novel starts on January 2nd, and I was really uh, conscious of the fact that this idea of also starting a new year, but you're in this really cold period, and there's this massive snowstorm of historic proportions, and... And I knew, you know, and and then when they, when Little Brown decided they were coming out with the book, almost on the same date that the novel starts at, um, I, yeah, that felt right to me. It's like, okay, it is a, it is kind of a winter novel for sure. And people probably don't, a lot of people don't realize how much there's, uh, in Frankenstein, the poles, I think they go to Antarctica. Yeah, they end up, right, right. Um, I can't, it's been a long time since I've read it, but yeah, so it literally ends up with Frankenstein or, you know, Frankenstein's monster or whatever you want to call him sort of floating off on a, on an iceberg. Yeah. Right, up in the North Pole so somewhere. Very right. snowy and cold. Yes. Yes. Uh, you, you've said before that some writers think of story as art as the same thing as a painting, whereas you see a book as a form of communication, as a conversation. Can you, can you elaborate a little on that? Um, I, I mean, I think of myself as a storyteller more than anything else, and I don't. It's not that I don't. I mean, I don't blame writers who think of themselves as artists. I don't care. It doesn't, you know, I'm not saying that I think that, they're pretentious in some way. It just, that doesn't occur to me. I mean, I don't, and I think when people talk about craft and there's so much attention to technique and um, what people used to call sort of refer to as the cult of the sentence, right? Like it's all about writing beautiful sentences. And I hope I'm writing nice sentences, but that's not really what it's about to me. You know, I'm not, I'm more involved with character. I'm more involved with story. I'm more involved with theme. Um, So that sometimes I have to be, it's interesting because I had a really, really exacting kind of difficult editor with this, novel, Ben George at Little Brown. And I, I wanted him to be the editor for that reason, because I, the book was really complicated and I wanted somebody who was going to take me to task for all of the small decisions that I was making on a line by line level, because that's not really where my thinking is all the time. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I needed that for this book, that I needed somebody who was paying that kind of attention to every line. And he did. <laughs> it was a long, tough process. Wow. And how much did you feel uh, in, that you needed to get the history right? Since part of the book is taking right. place in the distant past when right. maybe Goodnight Idaho had a more bright future. Yeah, you get stuck in that. I mean, it's tough because you feel like you, you, know, you want to get it right, but you don't want to be obligated 
to do it exactly the way it happened, you know? So you, you don't want to feel like you're trapped or stuck in some historical version of the town. Uh, and so it's kind of a fine line. I mean, I do feel, you know, with at least within the parameters of the story. So I know how the town is operating in terms of the story. And within those parameters, I want it to be right. So you do a certain amount of research and you go back and you look at these things. But then I think it's a matter of saying, okay, I refuse to be obligated to get it right outside what I set up as the parameters, right? right. It's my world. I invented it. It's my place. And uh, so I'm only accountable in terms of my own imagination and the way that I'm dealing with it. And do you have any inkling what your next project's oh. going to be? Um, I actually, I, I've kind of got this, I, again, it's a North Idaho thing, but I've kind of got an idea, may or may not be the next novel. I've kind of got an idea that I'm going to write a short novel about a bunch of guys in uh, the 80s on like one certain night who are going out. They've just graduated from high school and they're trying to pick up girls in this small town um, and they're in a green Ford Pinto uh, with racing stripes, with an eight track, <laughs> and they only have one eight track tape, and it's the Cars Candio, and the first song is Let's Go. If you remember that, I think yep. the novel is going to be called Let's Go. They're driving around this whole night listening to this one CD, um, miserably <laughs> failing at the idea of picking up girls in this. I think that's where the next novel is going. And is that a dream that you had? No. No, not, so this no. is this, this is, is not total, a dream this, narrative. No, I wish it were a dream, but it actually was more <laughs> related to real life. Yeah. Well, it was great having you on Between the Thank Covers you. today, Thanks. Keith. Appreciate it. We are talking today to Keith Lee Morris about his latest novel, Traveler's Rest. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening. <laughs>